Our guest on this recorded edition of Extension 720 is one of America's leading foreign policy statesmen, uh, namely Warren Christopher, former Secretary of State, who has just done a memoir titled Chances of a Lifetime. That's published by Scribner. It's been uh, a uh, significant lifetime. It's been a lifetime in and out of government. Yes, I actually patterned it that way in a sense. Uh, Melt, I've been able to combine uh, private practice of law with occasional excursions into government. Made well, life very interesting. Well, rather significant excursions into government. I think the first one was as an assistant attorney general during the Johnson administration. Deputy attorney general was the number two post during the Johnson Deputy, administration. Deputy, actually, yes. So you started high. <laughs> well. And you were, you, you, I think you first came to general view for the rest of the country who don't know the Washington bureaucracy as well as uh, people on the inside do. When you went to Detroit in the middle of the race riots that were occurring, was that 1967? 67, that's yeah. right. The day I was confirmed, uh, President Johnson sent me to uh, Detroit. Uh, President Johnson was very constitutional in the sense he, he would not order federal troops in any riot situation without the recommendation of a federal civilian officer. So he sent me and Cy Vance at that time to Detroit because he knew he might have to order federal troops. And you've wound up one way or another, often in the middle of rather hostile or difficult crowds. Yes, it's uh, life has happened that way. Probably the reason that uh, President Johnson brought me back as Deputy Attorney General was because I'd had some experience in the Watts riots in Los Angeles two years earlier. When you were based in California with your regular law firm. Uh, yes, and at that time I'd been quite close to Governor Pat Brown, and he asked me to be vice chairman, even though I was quite a young lawyer at that time, of a commission to look into the Watts riots. I'm thinking of other riots uh, that you have enjoyed or that have uh, somehow made life difficult for you. There was the occasion when you went to um, Taiwan. Uh, this was representing uh, President Carter, I guess. That's correct. When you were in a high post in the State Department, but not yet Secretary of State. And you were, brought them the interesting news that we were going to recognize, or had we just recognized, the People's Republic as uh, the official Chinese government, and they were going to displace uh, the Taiwan Republic uh, in UN representation as well. Yes, it was a difficult mission. Uh, I was to go there and explain to them that we would maintain warm relations, but they'd be unofficial relations. Yeah. The official relationships would be with China. and. Perhaps not surprisingly, look backing, looking back on it, Milt, uh, the people in Taiwan were upset and outraged by that, and so I was greeted by a, a very hostile demonstration. And they assaulted you with eggs thrown at you in the car, or yes, from we, the we were, I was with the ambassador. We were going into town, and we came down this avenue with maybe a hundred people deep on each side, and they threw um, first eggs, tomatoes, and then they began to throw cans and bottles. Uh, broke the windows of our car, and then after breaking the windows, they began to put poles in, jabbing at us with poles from both sides. It was a kind of a near-death experience. Did you have a sense that it might have been a fatal experience? Well, I was very worried about it. Frankly, I, I haven't been many times uh, that quite that concerned about whether we would actually get through that line of people mm -hmm. and, and poles. But you kept your cool. Yes, I kept my cool, uh, at least uh, outwardly. I was pretty turmoil filled inside. One other such occasion, it's an odd way for me to start this interview, but it rather struck me uh, when I was 
thinking through your career and also, um, of course, reading uh, this very uh, inevitably engrossing new book, Chances of a Lifetime by Warren Christopher. Yet one other such crowd occasion was right after the assassination of Martin Luther King, when in Washington, as in many other American cities, there was a considerable riot. Yes, that was a terrible time in America, Milt. Uh, after Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, riots broke out all over the country, but in Washington, D.C. was one of the earliest. And once again, uh, President uh, Johnson sent me into the riot situation to see if it was justified to order federal troops. And uh, we were out there in a police car, and I was trying to call in to President Johnson to give him my recommendation. And as I describe in the book, I found it rather difficult to do so because the communications were all tied up. It, that was a sad, sad time for the country. <clears throat> and indeed, though, your basic focus necessarily has been on uh, foreign policy and foreign affairs. Uh, I know you're a generally concerned citizen, very interested, in fact, in the way in which foreign affairs relate to our own domestic issues and our own domestic problems. We still, all these years later, have, some would say, quote, a racial problem. Do you agree? Oh, there's no doubt we do. We've made some progress, especially on the economic front. Many blacks have moved into the middle classes, but uh, we still have this division in our society, divided too many places, black against white. And, you know, it's something that we're going to have to continue to work on for a long, long time. Among other things you've been involved in uh, was um, helping to conceptualize and then to push through or maneuver through congressional approval, NAFTA, and also the gap arrangements uh, at a number of points. Uh, you remember, I think, the single greatest line for which Ross Perot will be remembered concerning NAFTA. He said, that sucking noise you hear is what? Is American trade or American prosperity going down the drain being sucked away by NAFTA? Was he right in any way? Uh, only partially so, and overall, I think, not correct. Uh, certainly some American businesses have moved to Mexico, but in overall sense, I think the best judgment is that NAFTA has been very, po very positive for American business, and uh, probably one of the things that President Bush will try to do is to extend that concept to other South American countries. One of the advantages of it is it's somewhat improved economic life in Mexico, uh, where we can regard them as more an equal partner, and certainly that's the way they want it seen. You came back from law practice yet once again, came to Washington once again, at the beginning of the Clinton administration. As I remember it, and indeed you write about this, of course, in the new volume, you were the transition chief yeah. for uh, President Clinton, helping him decide who to put in office. Uh, interestingly, more recently, uh, the transition chief for George Bush became a leading member of his cabinet, and you became a leading member of Clinton's cabinet. Well, actually, the transition chief became his vice, uh, became Bush's vice presidential candidate. Uh, but you were asked uh, to enter back into the State Department as Secretary of State, and you served the whole full first four years of the Clinton administration. Well, that's correct. Uh, it came as quite a surprise to me. I was helping President Clinton make the choices and sort of organizing the information for him, talking to him about it. And when we got to talking about Secretary of State, um, we went down the list of names. And at the end of that afternoon, he pulled me aside and said, this is a, a not, not a useful expenditure of our time. I want you to be Secretary of State. Let's mm -hmm. get on with it, uh, which it was rather stunning to me. But uh, 
uh, I, I asked for overnight to think about it, had a sleepless night. But I guess uh, looking back on it, no, there was no chance I was going to say no. It's the best appointed job, I think, in the world, certainly the mm -hmm. best appointed job here in the United States. As you look back on those four years, what were, or in, as you think about the very beginning of the Clinton administration, what were the three or four major problems or major items in front of you as you sat down at the desk at Foggy Bottom that first day? Well, one of the things we had to do, and probably all administrations do, is to deal with the problems that are left over from the prior administration. Mm -hmm. uh, that included uh, Haiti and Bosnia, some other problems around the world, the Middle East, and I think we, we had to attack those first. And uh, that consumed a good deal of time during the first year as we began to, you know, get our feet under the table and begin to be effective, more effective in foreign policy. One thing I would say about it, Meld, is that President Clinton brought to foreign policy the sense of the importance of the economic dimension in a way that never has been before. And I think that's one of the things to be most remembered for over time. Things like, as you say, NAFTA, uh, the WTO, World Trade Organization, uh, basically rescuing uh, Mexico from the meltdown that it might have had, doing the same thing with respect to uh, Brazil. So the president, I think, realized the importance of the economic dimension of, of foreign policy and use that to sustain our prosperity here in the United States. Uh, I think that when people look back at this period, they'll see the importance of that. And we began to confront that right at the beginning. One of the first things that the president did was to invite for the first time all the leaders of the Asian countries to a, a summit uh, in Seattle to talk about uh, uh, trade problems in Asia. And we've reaped great benefits from that. It's interesting, all the secretaries of state from virtually the end of uh, World War II up until your assuming the office had as the first item on their constant agenda relations with the Soviet Union. Uh, you didn't have that problem because by the time you came into office, the Soviet Union was about two years dead. It no longer existed. But of course, Russia still remained an interesting and important question, though the Cold War in some sense had really abated. Uh, and when you came in, uh, we had as president of the Soviet Union, the first elected one ever, I suppose, uh, Boris Yeltsin, about whom you write in this book. Yes. What were your impressions of the man? My impressions were that he was a powerhouse on his good days. Um, he, but he had, had bad days. He had very bad days, as I write about in the book. Uh, he um, was a person of enormous political skill. Sometimes that's forgotten. He was able to go into a crowd with something like the same charm and ability that uh, President Clinton was. And he had a real touch with the people of, uh, of Russia. But um, at the same time, uh, he had some large personal faults that uh, interfered, I think, with his effectiveness, especially as time wore on. You think the drinking is, in fact, such a fault? It certainly, it certainly was a problem for him. It made him less effective, and I think it probably impaired the rest of his health, which was not very great mm -hmm. in any event. All in all, did he accomplish anything significant in moving Russia away from the years of communist tyranny? Oh, unquestionably. You know, two elections were held, uh, two free elections, uh, at least outwardly free elections, were held under his aegis. That's a real accomplishment. Russia might have uh, reverted uh, to a dictatorship. And one of the reasons I think that President Clinton and the rest of us uh, were committed to trying to help him was because he was, I think, at rock bottom, a, a real Democrat. He believed 
in, in, in voting. He, he believed in counting votes. He believed in democratic systems. So for all the problems, uh, I'd have to say that uh, he was more plus than, than minus, especially during the first term. I'm going to try for a now it can be told. Well, maybe it can't be. There are those who say that his second election, particularly as president, when uh, he started, uh, was um, it took, it required a good deal of maneuvering and a good deal of assistance because when he started, he was very, very low in the polls. And it has been said that a good deal of American help was offered by way of PR, media specialists, and so on, and that we informally, as a government, took a great deal of interest in getting him reelected. Well, I think President Clinton uh, tried to help him because he was. I thought he, he felt he was a, a true Democrat. There, there are lots of consultants around now, and I think President Clinton guided some of them toward uh, President Yeltsin. Uh, but uh, you know, there were there were consultants on all sides of the, all sides of that race ultimately. But did President Clinton, perhaps with assistance from you, also help raise some of the money to pay those consultants uh, for Yeltsin? Certainly not that I know of. Uh, not none by me, and I, I don't I don't know if it's ever been charged with President Clinton, and I. I I'd be very surprised if that were true. There were lots of them who were prepared to help. A columnist in the Washington Times suggested that, if only speculatively, mm -hmm. some while ago. It's it's beyond my knowledge. Yeah. Of course, it wouldn't be quite legal to do so. Oh either. no, it certainly wouldn't be legal, and you get you know very close to the line uh, if you're intervening in any way in an election in a foreign country. I always tried to avoid that. We were quite often invited to take one side or another, and. Uh, a, it's not good policy, and B, probably it's it's self-defeating because mm -hmm. the United States, uh, uh, th th you can be made a whipping boy if your if your hand shows in in those elections. Uh, in earlier years, you know, times less good than now, I think the CIA was uh, charged with being responsible for doing that. I don't think it's very good policy, and quite often uh, bites you back. That, that raises an interesting question. The CIA has always denied that it ever intended to assassinate any foreign leader. Though in the case of Castro and the exploding cigars, there's some ambiguity. There's also some ambiguity with regard to the the death at the hands of his opponents so many years ago in the Congo of Patrice Lumumba. But I, Bill Colby was here once and uh, years and years ago on this program. In fact, he was here a few times and I did press him on that. He said it has never been permissible in CIA policy. There may have been a few rogue misadventures, and uh, we certainly won't have any of that anymore. I've mentioned all of this simply because it now becomes increasingly apparent that the Israeli government, uh, faced with the collapse of, or at least the deterioration of the negotiations with the PLO, has undertaken more openly perhaps than they had done before, the direct assassination of some high PLO functionaries. And they're not denying that they're doing it, are they? Uh, I don't think they're denying it, no, and I don't think it's a good policy for them. Say a little more about that. Well, it's a desperate situation there, Milt, and uh, uh, when you have uh, uh, buses of schoolchildren uh, gunned down by Palestinians, you have a, a natural reaction. Uh, but uh, when you start down that road, you invite uh, open warfare, <laughs> and one of the great dangers we have now uh, is a deterioration of the situation there. I think we have to try to stabilize it. And those assassinations, if that's what they are, are only leading to greater instability in that area. I think the United States policy now has to do everything we can to have the parties take a step back, take a time out, 
because we probably can't move forward right now, but at least we can prevent the gains that have been made from being lost. During your watch as Secretary of State, there were some great gains. Most notable, perhaps, was not um, a reconciliation between uh, the Israeli government and the PLO, though that was moved forward, those negotiations were, but rather the peace agreement between Israel and Jordan. Absolutely. That, that was a big step forward, and people don't remember that as much as they ought to now. You know, good things happen, they're kind of digested, and the bad things uh, uh, stay, on, stay on the front pages. But uh, that was a big step forward, of course, done mainly between King Hussein and Prime Minister Rabin. But uh, as I indicated in the book, uh, probably that would not have happened without the United States acquiescence. And without your efforts uh, in uh, bringing them together. And well, we, we made a great effort along those lines. Of course, yeah. there were two outstanding leaders uh, who uh, who left something, uh, you know, yeah. left a legacy, uh, Hussein for his son and Rabin for his country. And you write about both of them, of course, and both uh, you knew rather well. One died uh, of natural causes, but rather on the young side, and the other, of course, was assassinated in yeah. a dreadful uh, particular occasion, one night in Jerusalem. Looking back on that, that was a real setback for the cause of peace. Rabin had that combination of characteristics, toughness, but uh, at the same time, an understanding that peace was important that enabled him to uh, uh, move his country forward. The people of Israel trusted him in a way that they haven't the leaders since then, I believe. Uh, so when he was assassinated on November 4th, 1995, it seemed very adverse at the time. Over time, it seems even more adverse. That was perhaps a high point in the peace process in the last period of time. From then on, it's been, it hasn't been all downhill, but largely downhill. Uh, as I write in the book, I was with President Clinton when uh, news of that assassination came in, and he was quiet for a long time. You could almost read his mind thinking, you know, this happens to leaders, doesn't it? Will it happen to me someday? And at the same time, I know thinking, what a tremendous setback it was when his friend Rabin was assassinated. Where do things, how do things deteriorate as much as they have done so that now not only is another intifada ra raging, but uh, there seems to be a total impasse and uh, the recent government of Israel has been rejected by the electorate mm -hmm. and uh, General Sharon mm -hmm. has been uh, made, has been brought uh, to the premiership and Lord knows, and they said they are rescinding all the offers made earlier by Ehud Barak. Where do they stand? Uh, well, I think a lot of the fault has to be laid, unfortunately, at the uh, steps of Arafat. Um, uh, either Arafat cannot control the violence, or he's decided that he prefers the street for the time being. Uh, he had a remarkable offer from Barak uh, under uh, under a good deal of encouragement from President Clinton, and then the Clinton. Uh, plan itself would have given uh, would have given the Palestinians almost everything that they had uh, asked for, uh, maybe 90 or 95 percent of it. But for some reason, Arafat had decided it was not for him at this point in history, and so he has not done as much as he could, I think, or perhaps it's out of control for him at the present time. But he has opened up the situation to in a way that uh, uh, has caused a rather natural reaction. Uh, from the Israelis, uh, the defeat of Barak, you know, largely I think because uh, violence uh, continues and, and that Arafat rebuffed what was a very, very good offer. So I, I, I'm afraid that, yeah. uh, sad as it is to have to assess blame on one side or the other, Arafat bears a heavy responsibility. Well, you say for some reason Arafat rebuffed a very good offer. The reasons are uh, hard 
to calculate, you've mentioned a number of possible ones hypothetically, which one do you think carries the greatest explanatory power? I think it's very hard for uh, Arafat to come to closure on anything. He's a, just one more thing, Mr. Secretary would always say to me at the end of a negotiation. So I think he could never quite bring himself to conclude that this was all he could get from Barack. And, and that, I think, was combined with, with the fact that in order to maintain his power as it erodes away, uh, he needs to encourage the, the younger, more violent people around him. They're less, less in his control. So I think that combination of factors, this guerrilla personality that keeps him from ever coming quite to agreement, and for his, and also his assessment that in order to stay in power, he may need to uh, loosen the reins with respect to the, the violence. And you, you uh, in the book, you speak of this, and you just spoken of it earlier, that um, when you and Clinton first heard of the assassination of Rabin, you thought you saw fleeting or flitting over the president's features a certain concern over. Well, this could happen to leaders. Could it happen to me? Was that assassination of Rabin also uh, a, do you think, a decisive influence upon Arafat? Uh, you know, I, I've never thought of uh, of that, Milt. Uh, Doesn't he fear the possibility of assassination from his own uh, uh, fanatic yes, I think he, surrounders? Uh, he, he always has felt that fear. I mean, he, you know, he, he's lived very dangerously all of his life, yeah. making you know, groups around him, uh, uh, holding them at bay trading them off one against another. So my guess is it was not nearly as much a, a surprise to him, or at least it wasn't as hard a thing to digest as it was for President Clinton. You do know that there are some who've written in recent months, as the Middle Eastern situation has deteriorated, that um, the Clinton government, not so much during your four years as Secretary of State, but during the second term, made a mistake in pushing so hard upon the Israeli government to yield, upon Barack especially, to yield so much that that only, in fact, encouraged uh, Arafat and the more radical right-wing people around him mm -hmm. to go for still more and ultimately encourage them to think, one columnist at least has said this recently, to think that um, in view at last, now that the Israelis are looking weak and conciliatory, is the possibility of bringing other Arab states in for another big round of a major war against Israel, maybe to, if not push all the Jews into the sea, to disestablish the Jewish state. It's very hard for me to fault uh, the president or anybody else who, who pushes hard for peace in the way that President Clinton did. Uh, it seemed to be right out there and close, and I'm sure he felt if we can just push a little harder, uh, we, we may succeed. And I'm sure that's what motivated him in the last, in the last months in office. Uh, uh, in office. Now, I un quite understand the, the notion that we should act as a facilitator rather than as a party in this situation. And my guess is that's where Colin Paul will go back to. But uh, you know, I think things that are done in the cause of peace are highly justified and really very hard to criticize, even though you can say, looking back very, in a very uh, almost academic way, that that might have been harmful. There are those who are saying now, this thing is not going to be resolved until there's another major war uh, between the contesting parties, which means not only the PLO against Israel, but rather uh, contiguous Arab states against Israel, especially Iraq, Syria, and whatever remnant of autonomy there is in Lebanon might also be involved. Uh, probably not Jordan, probably not Egypt, yet one can't be sure. I'm not at all that pessimistic. I think short term, I, clearly I'm quite pessimistic, but medium term and long term, 
I think we have great opportunities in the future. At some point, Arafat will move on. That'll be a convulsive period, a difficult period. Uh, but uh, I think in an underlying way, I think the citizens of Israel want to have peace. They understand the importance of being part of a community rather than being a constant armed camp. I could see the advantages that they found when they had peace with Jordan. One border was no longer a hostile border. I could mm -hmm. see the effect on, on their business and industry. You know, if you look back at uh, what's happened in business and in, uh, industry in, in Israel, there was a great upswing after 1993 mm -hmm. and in that period when peace seemed a real possibility. So I think we'll come back to that. I'm not so, so pessimistic that I think we have to have a major war uh, before the problem can be resolved. It raises a great more generalized question. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, what is the nature of peacemaking? Finally, what is the formula or what is the art of peacemaking? You've been involved in peacemaking in the Middle East, in Haiti, uh, in Yugoslavia, and uh, for that matter, in certain very troubled American mm -hmm. cities. We pause briefly for some commercials. When we return, I'd love to hear the thoughts of Warren Christopher about the art of peacemaking itself, directly back after these words. And we return to conversation with Warren Christopher, former Secretary of State and author of a very valuable new memoir, very readable, I might add as well, Chances of a Lifetime. Uh, that is just recently published by Scribner's. Um, I put to you the rather large assignment a moment ago. Um, from all of your rich experience, what do you know about the art of peacemaking itself? Well, it is a big question, Nelta. I think it begins with uh, with communication, finding some way to get the parties involved, communicating with each other. Uh, so often, when you go into these situations, there is an absolute block on uh, on important, meaningful communi communication. And if you can open up those channels, that's step number one. I think step number two is the importance of being able to put yourself in the other country's shoes, to see it from their standpoint, to try to if you're trying to be the intermediary here, to try to talk to each country about understanding the needs and the interests of the other country, not just their negotiating positions, but their real needs. And finally, unfortunately, in some instances, it takes uh, the use of force. Bosnia was a particular example of that. I think we did all we could to try to persuade uh, Milosevic to come to an agreement there. We had the meetings um, in, in the region between uh, uh, Milosevic and the other two parties, uh, but he, he really was not prepared to come to agreement until we, we commenced bombing after he had bombed Sarajevo. Now, uh, NATO's force there was absolutely essential, as it was in Kosovo. Those are unpleasant things for the United States to have to do uh, in, in our power position in the world, but sometimes all the conversation, all the conciliation, all the yeah. efforts to try to talk about mutual interests require a further push, uh, and it will be a, a great issue for American policymakers for a long time as to when and under what circumstances we're justified in doing that. Do you think the former Yugoslavia is stable now, that uh, Bosnia is settled, that Kosovo is settled, that no trouble will em emerge in Macedonia or Montenegro? Uh, you know, there, there are very few permanent victories uh, in foreign policy, and certainly there are likely to be very few in, in the Balkans. I do think that uh, great strides have been made in Bosnia. Difficult as that is, the parties are finally beginning to work together in a unified natural, national government. The communication is a little bit better between the three groups, that is the, the Serbs and the Bosnians and the Croats. Uh, 
So, uh, you know, the warfare that existed when we came into office, killing a thousand people a month at the highest point, is ended, and they're able to work through those problems. Now, the hatred is very deep. It's centuries deep. Uh, the situation in Kosovo is uh, it's a little even less matured than that. They're still trying to work their way through the problems at the borders of where Albania fits into this picture. But nevertheless, they're working through it in an atmosphere uh, where they're not at war with each other. Uh, but that's one of the most difficult places in the world. At the same time, it has the capacity to influence the rest of Europe. So it's worth continuing to work on. And uh, hard as the problems are, difficult as it is for us to keep uh, you know, American troops in, in that area, I think it continues to be justified. And I'm pleased to understand that uh, President Bush has uh, uh, agreed that there will be no precipitous action to remove American troops. You know, it occurs to me you are the fifth Secretary of State to visit this program. Um, Cyrus Vance was here a long time ago, mm -hmm. George Schultz was, um, Secretary Baker was, and most recently Madeleine Albright. A question I think I've probably raised with all, and I certainly uh, want to raise it with you right now, is finally what is the key to American foreign policy? Apart from protecting the country from uh, physical assault, what are the goals of American foreign policy? I think it has to be uh, stated in terms of uh, uh, preserving the peace around the world because when there's not peace in other parts of the world, they're likely to affect the United States, especially if it's major wars in, in other, other places where we have some interest. But I think there's an added dimension to it, and that is to try to preserve uh, prosperity here in the United States and to try to narrow the differences between the United States and the rest of the world in terms of their being so poor and so impoverished that it uh, makes them the seedbed of violence. So I think those two broad things are what, a, what an American Secretary of State has to worry about. Now, when I was in office, I used to sometimes walk down two or three blocks from my office to the Vietnam Memorial, and then the Korean Memorial was constructed during my time in office. And it would remind me, I did it to remind myself what was really the goal of American foreign policy. It was to avoid uh, events like that, uh, 50,000 Americans being killed. Sometimes you get so caught up in the niceties of international politics, the stratagems debating back and forth, that you mm. lose the sense that what we're trying to do is to make America more secure, but also make the world more peaceful. I just realized I misspoke myself and miscalculated. You are the sixth Secretary of State to visit with us. I left out Henry Kissinger. And when uh, Kissinger was here, and he had just done a major book on the history of foreign mm -hmm. affairs since, I think, the early 18th century. Yeah. Uh, I raised the same question, and I uh, raised also for him the perspective offered by George Kennan years ago in a book in which, I know it's one that you've read, though I can't remember its exact title, but he calls into question the Wilsonian approach to American foreign policy, saying that Wilson thought it was our function to kind of be busy in the world in essence, spreading democracy, and that that cannot be achieved, and it runs risks far beyond uh, real toleration and real national needs. Where do you stand on that Kennan-Wilson polarity? Well, I'm more on the Wilson end of that. Uh, uh, George Kennan is a marvelous man, he was a very good friend of the State Department and me when I was in office, and certainly contributed enormously at the time of, of, of uh, the Soviet strength. Uh, but uh, uh, there are many issues on which I, I find myself in disagreement. For example, he was strongly opposed to the expansion of NATO. 
think that was a very good thing. I think it was a good thing to bring in those three countries that lay between uh, NATO and, and Russia to give them the security of, of being within the Western orbit rather than being in, in the Eastern orbit. So I, I have great uh, esteem for both uh, Henry Kissinger and, uh, and George Kennan. But I would say on the spectrum, uh, I would put myself uh, nearer uh, Wilson. I, I would like to try to regard myself as a pra more pragmatic uh, Wilsonian. I know we can't do everything around the world, but I think it's in our interest to take into account humanitarian crises around the world. And my guess is that even though President Bush and Secretary Powell have uh, said that they were not going to get involved in nation building and that they were going to use American troops only when our vital national interests are involved, they may find uh, that it's not so easy to uh, draw that line. We are doing this program on a day <clears throat> directly preceding the evening's live program in which I will be discussing with two uh, who are sort of in debate format the feasibility and desirability of the newly proposed national missile defense, which mm -hmm. is our revised version of Reagan's strategic defense initiative. Uh, President Bush has said he's fully committed to that, and they're obviously going to push for it strongly. There is much opposition on various grounds. Where do you stand on that? I'm a kind of a contrarian on that, uh, Milt. Uh, uh, I think that we ought to try to find out first whether it's feasible. Uh, the efforts to uh, the test efforts have, have been quite uh, unsuccessful. The so bullet far. shooting down the bullet. That's right. Uh, uh, last year there were three tests and two of them failed, or at least one, one and a half of them failed. So my own feeling about it is, is we ought to decide whether it's really feasible before we take on and endure all the enormous uh, foreign policy negatives that come with going ahead. As I say, that's a rather contrarian view. But uh, you know, if we go ahead, we clearly will create great problems with our allies. We'll create enormous problems with adversaries like China, perhaps North Korea, and maybe even the Soviet Union. Now, I see some perhaps coming together on that issue. But for myself, before I was willing to take on board and endure the disadvantage of, of those things, I would like to be somewhat sure that it's going to work. Technically, it's an extremely extremely difficult problem. I'm not obviously technically qualified, but the people I've talked to about it who are technically qualified think it may possibly be able to be done, although uh, much more difficult if the adversary uh, himself is technologically competent. There are those who argue if it were technically possible and if it were achieved, it would have a, quote, destabilizing effect. Do you agree with that? Well, it certainly could because um, if we if we're able to do that, it might cause the Russians or other adversaries to simply build a great many more intercontinental ballistic missiles, so as to overcome, overwhelm our system. I think nobody feels that our, that our system would would be effective against a prolonged, sustained uh, attack by a country that was had an awful lot of warheads. Uh, it's really designed for dealing with rogue countries or countries with a relatively small number of warheads. Take the situation with China, at least. You know, the best information that's public is that China has relatively few warheads with uh, intercontinental capability. If we erect this missile uh, defense, they may well go in, into quite a different mode, and they're a country that probably has the resources to do it. Sure. North Korea seems to have stirred the whole thing up by uh, pushing a program to develop intercontinental ballistic missiles. Well, they have, and I, I think good good progress was made on this front toward the end of the Clinton administration. They weren't 
quite able to push it over the goal line and probably wisely preserving the, the difficult last part of that negotiation for the new administration. I hope that that won't slip back, uh, and I, I think there's some danger that it might, but that country may be coming out of its, uh, uh, its, its long isolation. They may be prepared to uh, uh, at least take a half a step toward the community of nations, and we ought to try to encourage that because, you know, we make plenty of enemies around the world. We don't need to uh, try to preserve them forever. You've just mentioned, once again, the aspirations of the Clinton administration. Um, you're not, you won't be surprised if I take this as our last uh, particular topic, the following. The, uh, another aspiration of the Clinton administration was to be followed by the Gore administration. Mm -hmm. uh, something very strange happened in this election, and you got directly involved as the leading uh, legal consultant and manager for the Gore campaign down in Florida. What are your reflections now that uh, that whole strange history has passed? Uh, Melt, I clearly made a mistake in writing the book when I did. I thought at age 74, uh, all my chances were largely behind me, so I uh, wrote this book. But then two chances came last year, one to help uh, Al Gore select Joe Lieberman, and then to go to Florida. Now, really, since I'm in Chicago, I ought to say that the, the leading strategist there, the, the man who was really in charge of, of the effort, was Bill Daly, for whom I yeah. developed enormous regard and respect. He, he's a fine man. Um, but I, di I, did go to, I did go to Florida, and uh, uh, looking back on it, I see things through a, perhaps a simpler uh, vision now uh, in terms of what happened that very first weekend. That very first weekend, we sought hand recounts in, in four counties where there had been uh, results that uh, didn't seem quite right, uh, and there were anomalies in, in the voting. That same weekend, uh, uh, Governor Bush's, <laughs> still call him governor, I guess, President Bush's team there in Florida, uh, went into federal court, the first first of any of the parties to go into federal court, and sought to prevent hand recounts. Now, as you look back, you can see all the moves back and forth following that, ups and downs. Sometimes uh, you'd be up in the morning, down in the afternoon. A court would move one way, a court would move the other way. Uh, I think that those themes dominated the counting all the way to the end until the middle of uh, December when the Supreme Court of the United States ruled by five to four that the hand counting should stop. Uh, I, uh, you know, there, there are several observations one might make about that. Uh, first, isn't it quite extraordinary that we settled this without violence, peacefully, that even the ruling party, or at least the dominant party in the country at that time, got more popular votes, and yet they were prepared to respect our institutions enough to accept the decision of the Supreme Court, even though they disagreed that with it. That does speak very well for our constitutional it tradition, really doesn't it? It really does. Second, I think uh, that particular episode you know, unpleasant as it was in many ways, did unearth a real weakness in our country, and that is in our <laughs> voting counting, our, the mechanisms for voting. It's, it's really uh, quite embarrassing that in this great democracy, we're still counting votes as if we were a country of, you know, 50 million people in the, in the 19th century. President Carter was here about a month ago, and I discussed this with him. And, of course, he's been so often involved in supervising elections elsewhere in the world. Right. And he said... If I had been asked to come in to supervise this election, I would have refused because it didn't meet the conditions that we set when it comes to elections elsewhere. Isn't that extraordinary? Well, and, and perhaps to get to the question you were really uh, focusing on, Milt, uh, uh, I find it very hard to reconcile my very high regard for the court as an institution, going back to the time when I was a law clerk to Justice Douglas, 
find it hard to reconcile that respect with the way they handled this particular matter. I think it was probably unwise for the court to have gone into this matter. It was a highly charged political situation. They knew from the first that they were going to be split 5-4. They were setting aside something that the Florida Supreme Court had done, and their view was it was highly unwise for the Florida Supreme Court to have involved itself. Right. Uh, you know, traditionally, the Supreme Court stays out of state court matters or state law matters. They, they plunged into this one. I guess I'd end by uh, associating myself with uh, Justice John Paul Stevens, an Illinois uh, lawyer and now judge, a senior judge on the court appointed by Republican uh, Gerald Ford, who said, you know, we may never know who was the real winner in Florida, but we know who the losers were, and that is the judges of the United States to whom people look for nonpartisan action. But what is then is the recommended attitude from this point on concerning this new government and its legitimacy? Oh, I think that, that, that I'm clear about that. We have a new president. He's in office. He needs to be respected uh, as the president of the United States. We need to move on. No question about that in my mind. Uh, he, is, he is a legitimate president because uh, the institution of the United States Supreme Court has, has pronounced that. So I, I think that we ought to move on. This, this recounts that are going on in Florida these days uh, by, by press associations or newspapers are interesting, but I don't think they're very important. Uh, and equally worthy of our respect is Warren Christopher, who has served the nation for many years um, and who has now reported on those years and on some of the major crises and programs uh, that he presided, um, that he was involved in and often presided over uh, in his memoir, Chances of a Lifetime, just published by Scribner. Thank you so much, sir, for joining us. Uh, thank you, Mel. I enjoyed talking with you.